my guest for the day, triple majored in undergrad. When she didn't know what to do with her degree, she transitioned to law school and a brief law career before finding her true path in venture capital. Now, she's the first woman in Wisconsin to found her $10 million investment venture, The Winnow Fund. I'm Ben Brown, and this is the Madisonian Podcast. I started listening to podcasts maybe two or three years ago. The first podcast I was introduced to was NPR's How I Built This with Guy Raz. Guy sits down with founders of major companies and talks to them about how they built their companies. I've listened to every episode to date. There's one question that he asks every founder. Did you have outside investment to fuel the business? This question is the root of what my guest for the day does for a living. She manages the Winnow Fund that focuses on investing in early stage companies or ideas like the ones the founders have on how I built this. Now please enjoy my interview with the first female venture capitalist in Wisconsin to start her own fund, Rochelle Martin. I'm Rochelle Martin, and I am the founder and managing partner of the Winnow Fund. I grew up in Franklin, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee. It's kind of the far southwestern corner of the county. And I am a middle child. I have an older sister, a younger brother. We're all almost exactly two years apart. And, um, you know, just grew up in this small farmhouse with my brother, my sister, and my parents. And when I say small, I mean like it was really small. Like for a while, my sister, my brother, and I all shared a room because we needed a separate room for our toys. And um, then, you know, my sister and I shared a room for a really long time. And going back there, like over the holidays, I am amazed that two people can coexist in small spaces like what we grew up in. Um, But as the middle child, I mean, I was a classic middle child. I got in trouble. I like lied to my parents all the time, came home late, got in fights with my brother and my sister. But, um, you know, as we grew up, we, we got to be really, really close. And so my sister was the first one to go to college and, you know, the first one for everything. So she was the first one to head off to college. My parents had not gone to college. My dad dropped out of high school to join the army and he joined when he was 17. So my grandpa had to sign off to let him uh, join because he couldn't sign up himself as an adult. And he was really eager to get out of the house. He wanted to get out as soon as he could. He went off to the army. He ultimately did finish high school and he got um, like a technical degree in Germany. So my dad has a German high school diploma. Uh, And then my mom, you know, she finished high school and she just went right to work. So neither of my parents had gone to college. So when my sister went to college, My parents were like, all right, cool, have fun. Like figure it out on your own. So she ended up going to a state school and she commuted back and forth. So she still lived at home. So I still had to share a room. And she um, worked full time through college as well. So by the time I was leaving for college, that was my understanding of what college was gonna be like. So what was what was the elementary middle school experience for you those early years of of education what kind of student were you we started off at a small catholic school so my class size well and i should also say i started a year early my birthday is in late september so starting off at a smaller catholic school my parents um got me into the class you know a year ahead of what i think most students traditionally would enter into and so I was the the small kid. I was a lot shorter than everybody else. And I was really quiet. I only, you know, had this tiny class size. The class didn't change as I went from kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. You know, it was pretty much the same kids every year. So I didn't have to do a lot of socializing. Um, After third grade, my parents said, you know, we're, we're putting these kids in public school. And I went into fourth grade and I had to make new friends. 
you know, I, I had to figure out like a whole new, there was more than one fourth grade class. It was really scary for a fourth grade kid. And I don't know what happened. I all of a sudden decided that I wanted to like run for student council. It was all these things that weren't options for me in the small Catholic school. Like we didn't have student government and I found it really interesting. So I thought, well, why not? And I just started getting involved in more and more things. Um, and so, you know, and that was also the first time that I was, you know, in a school without my sister. And so I was the older sibling. My brother was then in second grade. And so it was really interesting that I didn't have my sister as kind of my safety net, you know, someone to see in the hallways or to run into on the playground. And so um, I think it really forced me to be a little more outgoing. Up until that point, I was a shy kid. I didn't talk. My parents always tell stories about how as a baby, no one in, in my family except for my mom or my dad could hold me, you know, like aunts, uncles, because I would just start crying. They kept me in a carrier with a blanket over the top of it because if a stranger looked at me, I got upset. And so, <laughs> um, you know, that was kind of my trajectory until my parents put me into public school and I was just sort of forced out of necessity to, to branch out and, and become a little more outgoing and get rid of some of that shyness. Um, and so that kind of carried on through, through the rest of, um, you know, elementary school into middle school, uh, where I grew up, there's a bunch of elementary schools that all flow into one middle school. And then that middle school flows into one high school. And so, you know, in middle school, I started getting into sports. So I, um, joined a gymnastics team. So I got to meet people from, you know, other schools, uh, you know, and made some more friends that way. And then that was the first time that I probably had real, like, anxiety about something other than like public speaking or making new friends, you know, cause then you're going to these events and you're in public and there's all these people watching in the, in the crowd. And, you know, I supermaned over a vault one time, I, you know, completely fall off the beam in front of people. And so, um, you know, you, you learn to be embarrassed. <laughs> and, um, so that, I think that was really fun. I, and then that got me kind of interested in, you know, just trying other new things, things that, I think are scary. Kids have a much better, um, you know, I think response to things that are new and scary and they adapt a lot easier. So I'm glad that I got to go through all of that as a kid. Um, so when you were in, so when you were in high school and what, what did you want to do for a living? What was kind of your, on your agenda or did you have an agenda? Just tell us about Kind yeah, of. I went through all the usual, like, I want to be a veterinarian. I love animals. You know, I think things that jobs that kids tend to gravitate towards, sometimes because it's the only ones they know about. I also started doing a lot of volunteering. Um, when I wasn't in, in uh, elementary school and middle school, I was friends with a girl named Sarah. And Sarah developed ovarian cancer at a very young age. And she ultimately passed away from it, but she was a wish kid with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And so that was my first, that was my introduction to the nonprofit world. Um, you know, she had a wish granted. She went to meet Conan O'Brien in New York City. She, she was like, I think she was 14 at the time. I think I was 13, she was 14 or 13 or 14. Um, I don't know any 13 year old who's like, Oh, I can have any wish in the world. I want to go meet this, you know, adult comedian. Um, she had the best sense of humor. So she was flown out to New York, went on a shopping spree. Um, you know, she came back, could not stop talking about it. And for someone who had watched their friends, you know, basically just go from one medical appointment to another, you know, therapy, treatment, be too tired to do anything her whole life was this disease to see her come back from that trip and be excited and talk about all these fun cool things these new things she saw these new experiences she had it was like she was just a kid again and so to me that really had a huge impact and so um that was the time that I started thinking maybe I wanted to work with nonprofits. so those are you know that was something that I carried with me throughout the rest of my life and even still but that was the introduction to it. And my, after Sarah passed away, my friends and I, you know, our, our little middle school self started organizing like car wash fundraisers and we'd raise a couple hundred dollars or something, but, you know, donated it all to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Um, 
So it was sort of an underlying theme in my life that I wanted to always make sure that I was doing something, I think, um, you know, in the nonprofit world, giving back. And so that was always kind of at the back of my mind, too. But in high school, I don't think I really had any idea. And in undergrad, you know, in high school, it was more, um, I just wanted to have fun. And so, uh, you know, like I said, I had no idea by the time I got to undergrad and my parents, you know, were like, all right, cool. Second kid going off to undergrad, have fun, good luck figuring it out. And based on my sister's example, I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll just go somewhere nearby. I applied to a few, um, you know, I had applied a little bit broader out just based on some schools I had heard about. And, you know, I got some sort of generic scholarships to some out-of-state schools. Um, all of it was just too much. Like, I did not want to take out student loans. It was terrifying. I had worked a lot through undergrad. Um, and, you know, I kind of understood the value of money. My parents were really, really good at, at teaching us responsibility from a young age. You know, if I wanted to drive when I turned 16, my parents gave me access to a car, but I had to pay for gas. I had to pay for insurance. And so to do that, I had to get a job. So I had a job from the time I was 13. Uh, and so, you know, summer jobs, and then it kind of carried into part-time work during school. My senior year of high school, I had two jobs. I was working at a restaurant and I was working at a grocery store. Um, and so, you know, I didn't want to spend all my money on school. When I got accepted to Marquette, I kind of went through the motions. And then when I started looking at the financial aspect of it, I thought, I don't even know why I'm going to college. So I don't know why I want to go spend, you know, ten or twelve thousand dollars to figure that out when I could do that somewhere else. So I walked into the admissions office at UW Milwaukee maybe a week before the semester started, brought all my paperwork in, they accepted me, and so I started undergrad at UW Milwaukee, um, and you know picked a lot of classes that I thought just sounded fun. I kind of was all over campus those days, but it was really fun, and I kind of. I kind of wish that more, you know, undergrads have that experience. It, you know, it was interesting. And I think it gave me a new perspective on education. So what did you do after, after undergrad? Well, undergrad took five years because I didn't figure out what I wanted to do until about year three and a half. Um, at that point, I had taken what I, I call my four fun um, classes became a four fun major. So I uh, had an art history undergrad degree. And then I um, really had focused on political science and psychology because I uh, kind of liked the, you know, the human aspect of it. And I liked the data aspect of it. So I ended up graduating with, uh, I triple majored. So it did take me a little bit of extra time. But so art history, political science, psychology, and you know, what do you do with those in the real world? Well, nothing. I mean, you go back to school <laughs> because I couldn't think of a job that any of those would, you know, that any of those made me eligible for that I wanted to do or that sounded like a future. Um, so I went to law school. But part of that also was through my political science classes, I met um, a woman who was taking classes and was managing a law office and they were looking for um, a new paralegal. And so I started working as a paralegal. Um, I want to say it was maybe my junior, maybe my second or third year. It's tough to say when you go for five years. Um, but I started working as a paralegal in a, in a law firm because I thought that sounded cool. And I wanted to learn about law. And it was a consumer law firm. And so we worked with a lot of clients that had some financial difficulties. Um, and the primary reason that they came to the firm was to file bankruptcy. And so, um, you know, if my parents hadn't taught me to be responsible with, with money, then that definitely would have. Um, because you see the trouble people can get into and you see how life can really, um, you know, challenge you that you think you're prepared for. You know, it went from anyone like someone who owned three houses and a Rolls Royce to a family that had three kids and two of them were, you know, undergoing cancer treatment. And so it just totally broad spectrum of the type of people that find themselves in these similar situations. And so that also really made me want to go to law school. And so ultimately I applied to one law school. I put all my eggs in one basket and applied to Wisconsin. I thought it was kind of a 
kind of a cool school because of the way that they set things up. So they had a lot of clinic programs, so it was a lot of uh, hands-on education. And then they also provided you with a co cohort. It, they call them small groups. So when you go to UW-Law, you get placed in a small group, and then your, your group travels with you throughout your first year. So your group of like 20 or 25 students is in every single class that you have. So you have people that you can compare notes with, people that can help you outline, people that can prep for exams. And so you get like built-in friends. So um, I really thought that that was an interesting way to approach it because this was gonna be the first time that I had really moved away from Milwaukee. So I was gonna be in a new town, you know, uh, living by myself for the first time. And, and so it was just a lot of firsts. And so I really liked the way that, that Wisconsin had set it up. So that's how I ended up in law school. So what was the experience in law school and did you want to transition immediately to a law career or or were you just going to drop that and go to something else? You know, I went into law school and I thought, I want to be a nonprofit attorney. Um, so, you know, flashback to me going into undergrad and being terrified about paying tuition. I paid my way through undergrad with a little help from my parents. Um, I did not have undergrad loans. Law school is so much more expensive than undergrad. Law school, you know, that was the first time I had to take out loans and I couldn't work. There's some restrictions on um, how much time you can spend working as a, as a student through like the ABA, um, American Bar Association. And so it was a very weird experience for me because it was like, I didn't have to work. I had money. I was going to school in a different town. It was just a strange time. Like I felt very disoriented for a while, but I met some wonderful, wonderful people. And I really liked law school in the beginning. And so, you know, after my first semester, I did really well on my exams. So it was this huge confidence boost. You know, I took more and more classes and there's not a lot on nonprofit law. Like nonprofit isn't a part of law. It's a part of business law. Uh, it's a part of tax law. It's a part of you know, trust in estates. And so I took a lot of those. I took biz orgs too. Uh, I took tax too, you know, and I then eventually joined what's called the law and entrepreneurship clinic. So my second summer, I did two things. I worked at the law and entrepreneurship clinic and I traveled. I, I did not know that you could study abroad in law school. Thankfully, someone uh, mentioned this to me and I looked into it. So I studied abroad in Italy. And I thought, I'm going to finally do something with this art history degree that I have. So I went to Siena, Italy, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Basically, the whole city is. And I studied the protection of ancient, you know, historically valuable, culturally valuable uh, places across the world and what different countries do to make sure that they are protected, you know, especially in like times of war. So there's different treaties about not bombing, you know, libraries and museums and things like that. Um, we learned about maritime law, uh, you know, the black market, uh, really, really interesting, cool things, all while being in this beautiful part of Italy and getting to travel around on the weekends. Um, and so it was a really, it was like a highlight of law school. I came back and started my time at the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic. The Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic is was almost brand new. It was They were just wrapping up the end of their first year. And they provide pro bono legal services to entrepreneurs. And at that time, they were really focused on kind of like the Madison, you know, Dane County community. Uh, so free legal services to people that had questions about starting a business. So that was the first time I got to work with people that were looking to create companies. So what kind of things were you doing at the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic? Well, back then it was it was um, kind of like flying by the seat of our pants. So there was a list. It was like a spreadsheet or something. And it had, I don't know, 20 people on it that were like, we need legal help for businesses. And I was like, I want a nonprofit. So I'm looking down the list, like who wants to do a nonprofit? And I come across this name, uh, Justin Watt. And he says, I want to create a nonprofit that provides, you know, access to after school sports for children. And I thought, Justin sounds like a nice guy. I'm going to send him an email and I'm going to tell him that we're going to help him. So I email 
Justin and I say, hey, I, you know, I'm a student attorney with the Law Entrepreneurship Clinic. We'd like to offer you some assistance. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit more about what you want to work on and let's set up a meeting. I, I had no idea he was J.J. Watt with the Wisconsin Badgers. I thought he was just a guy that wanted to start a nonprofit. Um, and a bunch of the people in the clinic were like, you don't know who J.J. Watt is? And I was like, you mean Justin? Um, that's how I first met J.J. Watt. He walked into the room, me and my supervising attorney, who are about the same size, you know, just a little over five feet. And the largest human being I had ever seen in my life walks into this room, shakes my hand. And I was like, oh, okay, I can see how you're a football player. Um, and he told us his story. You know, he had uh, he had a kind of privileged childhood. He had a family that could provide for him and, and give him access to sports. And clearly sports are a huge part of his life and his brother's lives. And he had seen what happened to kids that didn't have that outlet or that guidance or that, you know, experience with leadership and responsibility. And he wanted to do something about it. And so he created the Justin J. Watt Foundation. So we, um, you know, went through all the legal paperwork, got everything filed, went through um, obtaining nonprofit status with the IRS. And, you know, this was the first time I had done any of this. So it was really fun and exciting. And then JJ went into the draft and his mom took over. So I started working with Connie Watt and, you know, we kind of finished everything up and um, JJ went 11th in the draft to the Houston Texans. And since then, I have been to Houston probably at least once a year, um, you know, helping to plan with some of our events and stuff. But, uh, you know, he left, but the foundation continued. He was still very involved. He brought on a board. And so a couple of years in, they were doing some 5K walks, raising funding and stuff. And I had just kind of been in the wings, not a day-to-day -day part of the foundation, um, but there in case they had questions. And... I had graduated shortly, um, about a year after we started the foundation. So now I was working as an attorney in a law firm and I kind of hated it. I went to law school for three years and then realized I had been a paralegal. I worked in the law firm before law school for almost four years. So I thought I knew what I was getting into. Um, and I had been a law clerk for a few months before graduation and I got hired on. And I just hated it. I thought, what am I going to do? I wasn't having the greatest time with it. So I ended up leaving and took a job at UW-Madison in an office called the Office of Industrial Partnerships. That office was brand new. And the purpose of that office was to help industry engage um, easier with the research side of the university. And so I went off to start this new job. Um, and so I thought it was super interesting. It was fun because labs are like little startups and the researchers are like, you know, little company founders. Um, they have to find funding to keep their lab going. They're constantly trying to solve problems. Uh, you know, they're pushing, they're pushing the edge of knowledge in that space. So I really like that. So I started, ended up back at UW, kind of like full circle, you know, graduate from law school, leave for a few months and then come back to the university. And um, so it was interesting and it was kind of fun because for the first time in my life, I was like, OK, I'm doing this cool job and I was keeping up with nonprofit stuff, you know, and so um, I was still kind of helping out with the foundation. Uh, the foundation eventually asked me to be on the board. I like to tell everyone I replaced Brett Bielema because people in Madison don't always like him that much. Um, so, you know, I, I felt like I was in a really good place. You know, I was, I had realized long ago being a nonprofit attorney was not going to pay those student loans back that I was so terrified about. Um, and so I had a job that I really enjoyed. And then I was also, you know, kind of fulfilling my desire to do this nonprofit work. So I was at UW for a few years, it was about three years and the leadership structure in the office was starting to change. So our director was asked to take a different position to kind of help uh, rebuild a different center on campus. And so we were left without leadership and they wanted to appoint someone to fill that position. So I applied and I became the assistant director um, 
I never understood the title because we didn't have a director. So I was the assistant to no one, um, the assistant director of the office. And, you know, I continued on in that role for another couple of years. Um, as, as I worked in that office, I got to learn a lot about these, these entrepreneurs on campus because these researchers are entrepreneurs. We have entrepreneurs everywhere. Um, they were coming up with these great ideas, developing new intellectual property, you know, patenting really cool things. But then they didn't know what to do with it. You know, they, they didn't know what the next step was. And UW as an academic research institution, I think, felt an obligation to help them with the entrepreneurial side of things. But it probably wasn't something that they, you know, were really experienced in or, or should have been putting a lot of money towards. Um, and UW has an amazing research enterprise. You know, usually they're like one of the top 10, at least, well, sometimes top five. Uh, of the research institutions in the country in terms of the research funding that's coming in, you know, really strong partnerships. And so um, it's kind of frustrating that on the flip side, they don't have a lot of time or resources to put towards this entrepreneurship thing because they're so busy working on the research side of things. One thing I realized is that I could do a lot more for these people if I wasn't at the university. Um, in the university, you know, there, there were some uh, changes to the structure of my office and changes to the leadership structure. And I thought it was kind of a good time to leave. Um, you know, like they were shaking things up and I was like, so I ended up leaving. But um, the reason that I could leave is because I knew that I was going to be coming to the Winnow Fund. How did you know that? So uh, through my volunteer efforts, I had worked with a group called Jazz at Five. A friend of mine at UW was on the board. Uh, Jazz at Five is sort of like a arts nonprofit, you know, it's um, on the music side and they provide five weeks of um, jazz concerts that are free to the public at the end of the summer. So uh, everybody knows concerts on the square here in Madison, you know, the Milwaukee Chamber Orchestra, or sorry, Madison Chamber Orchestra uh, puts on these amazing concerts and then they're over and everyone's sad. Well, a lot of people don't know that immediately the next week, Jazz at Five starts. Um, you know, just on the other side of the square from that. And so I didn't know. So my friend said, hey, we could really use a hand because a lot of our volunteers can't make it tonight. Is there any chance you can come help out at Jazz at Five tonight? And I was like, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. My job was to serve beer in the beer tent, which like, that's not a job. It's kind of like a cool way to hang out. Uh, so and the bonus was you usually get like a free beer and a free slice of pizza while you're doing it. So I thought this is this is like the easiest volunteering that I've probably ever done. So I'm in the beer tent and I hand a beer to a guy who is also on the board of Jazz at Five. This man turned out to be Ken Johnson. Ken Johnson is a venture capitalist in the state of Wisconsin. And we got to talking because he's like, well, you're new. You know, a new volunteer, haven't seen you around here before, kind of asked me how I got involved in it and learned a little about my background. And, you know, kind of to sum it up, he said, so you're a lawyer who understands intellectual property and working with universities. And you've worked with startups. And I was like, yeah, that's basically it. And he's like, oh, well, I run this fund of funds program and we wanted to start a fund that focuses on really early stage things, building better relationships with universities to help universities spin out startups. And we just did not know that a person like you existed. Because it is kind of a weird background. Uh, interesting, I should say. So Ken and I started talking and he encouraged me to start the fund. The, you know, it was basically like I got a primer on what venture capital is because I it was something that was so foreign to me because I thought it's never going to be accessible to me in my life. You know, I kind of understood it. I knew about Silicon Valley, you know, about Facebook and Microsoft and these companies that had started out of garages. And um, that's kind of just what I thought that the whole thing was. And I knew that that was not a world that I would reasonably expect to be involved in. So Ken, you know, he was my mentor. So he taught me about venture capital and I thought, you know, maybe I can do this. And we did some more formal training. Like once I decided I wanted to do it, I thought, well, I really need to learn how to do this before I'm going to just, you know, take this leap of faith. 
So for a few years, Ken and I worked together and I was still at UW. So I did all of this, you know, on nights and weekends. Sometimes it was like a 7 a.m. meeting before I had to go into the office. And that set me up for being able to leave because at that point, Ken, you know, earlier on had said, if you start a fund uh, and we shared a goal of what this fund should focus on, if you start a fund with this focus, I will work with you to get an investment from the Badger Fund of Funds program. Um, you know, and so I worked with Ken. Ken worked with the fund that he represented. I went through different training things. I worked on training here in Wisconsin. I trained down in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is where um, the other half of the Badger Fund of Fund leadership is based. What What exactly do does the Badger Fund of Funds do? What do they invest in? They invest in other funds. So it's the Badger Fund was created. Um, the simplest way to describe it is like through a partnership with the state. The state set aside about $25 million because the state of Wisconsin recognized a need to encourage more startup activity. There's national rankings um, issued by the Kauffman Foundation. And Wisconsin was ranked last, like literally last. And you think about it, last in terms of entrepreneurship and startup activity. What are other states doing that we're not doing? What is North Dakota doing? What is West Virginia doing? Like we have world-class research institutions here. You know, we have UW Wisconsin, uh, Madison, we have, you know, Milwaukee, we have Marquette, we have um, MSOE, we have the medical college, and somehow we were ranked lower than every other state in startup activity. So Wisconsin finally said, we gotta do something about this. So they decided that they were gonna set aside some state taxpayer dollars and created this program. And then different groups applied to manage that funding that the state had set aside. And their goal was to promote venture activity in or with, you know, with investing in early stage startups. So the idea was let's create a few small funds that will write small checks. Cause you know, a venture fund, if you're a hundred million dollar venture fund, you're probably writing like at least $10 million checks. Cause you don't, you're not gonna have a huge portfolio of like a hundred different companies that you're trying to manage your investments in. And so you, the bigger fund you are, the bigger the check size you are, but a company that needs $10 million is very different from a company that is just starting out, you know, if you just establish a company and you are kind of working on a prototype of a project, you're not going to ask for $10 million, nor will anyone give you $10 million. You might want $250,000. So what you needed is smaller funds that were writing smaller checks that met the needs of these early stage companies. And so that's how we developed this Badger Fund of Funds network of which now I am a member. So the Badger Fund has a handful of smaller venture capital funds spread out across the state of Wisconsin that are all focused on investing in early stage with some ways that we distinguish ourselves. I have a focus on working with things coming out of universities. We're, we're talking a lot about venture capital here. I mean, and with the fund, can you tell us what exactly like goes on as a venture capitalist? Yeah. You know, the one thing that I think people forget or don't realize a lot is depending on what type of fund you are, some venture capitalists have to raise money themselves. And so that's what I've been doing for the last two years. So we're, we're like startups in that regard. We're like, I have to go out and get investors to believe in me. You have corporate VC where usually it's like a large company that sets aside some money. Typically they don't do a lot of outside fundraising. Um, you know, and so there's, there's different distinctions even among venture capital funds in the creation stage. And so um, there's also things like social impact funds where their investment strategy is focused on um, whatever they define as social impact. So it might be focused on, you know, improving education, uh, you know, um, environmentally, you know, conscious products or processes and things like that. And so um, that's all happening like before a fund starts to invest. And so, um, you know, as a, a privately uh, developed fund, I had to go out and fundraise. So for two years, I went and fundraised money all across 
Wisconsin and from some investors that were out of state. And then so now now when you get to the investment phase, you start looking at investments and they you look at ones that fall within that sort of focus or, you know, like strategy that you set for yourself, your your investment thesis. Um, and so for me, you know, I'm looking at really early stage or even pre company formation stage. So you might just have a product, not a company, Wisconsin based investment opportunities. And so um, I talk to uh, inventors, I talk to company founders, you know, and we talk about um, the things that I sort of base an investment decision on. So for me, like my job is to generate return for my investors. So the people that invested in my fund are um, expecting me to then invest that money into companies that will grow and then have an exit or acquisition event. So either, you know, they'll get acquired by a larger company or they might go public, um, but there's something that happens so that the value of that company is realized on the back end, and then that value is returned to my investors, you know, um, in excess of what our initial investment was. So that's what I'm doing now is looking to support these really early stage startups that have a potential for growth and exit. Um, so that we can return that capital to our investors. But, you know, the thing is we're fulfilling a need at this early stage for the funding because a lot of investors look for certain milestones before they will invest in a company. So they might want to see, um, you know, customers, they might want to see a fully developed product, uh, but it takes money to get to that point. And so I think the disconnect is that not everyone has the ability to put that money up personally. So I like to think that what we're doing is kind of encouraging people to remove that financial risk aspect from the entrepreneurial, you know, adventure. Um, and that in turn also opens it up to, I think, a wider group. There's um, more diversity in the types of people that have the ability to be entrepreneurs if you take that, you know, economic issue away. And so we're investing in anyone that has the chance to generate return for investors, whether or not they have the ability themselves to put 50 or a hundred thousand dollars into a company. So when you were fundraising or raising money for the fund, how much did you ultimately bring in from outside investors? Just North of 10 million. Wow. So my, my goal was eight. Uh, and when I set out, I had to raise a minimum of six. So for my fund to be able to invest, the minimum was six because that allowed us to write adequate check sizes and have a large enough portfolio that we felt that we were um, mitigating some risk through diversification of investments. And I hit six million in September, September 1st of 2020. That was exactly two years after I started fundraising two years after I left UW and fundraised full-time for the fund. So it was a long two years. That's two years. Isn't necessarily like a common time period for fundraising. Um, the other Badger funds have had shorter time periods, uh, a lot of different challenges. You know, I was fundraising on the heels of a lot of other funds, other funds in the ecosystem where had been fundraising as well. And then, you know, COVID hit in March and I wasn't able to do in-person pitches and to meet these investors and if you're going to invest in someone, I think it's really important that you have a good relationship with them. And so establishing relationships of trust and, um, you know, showing my competence and responsibility to them was hard doing it all virtually, you know, by phone or by a video conference. And so there were a lot of challenges that we had to overcome in the fundraising cycle. But so six million on September 1st and then on December 31st, so um, you know, just about a week ago, we closed officially just north of 10 million. So it was an exciting last part of 2020. Yeah. So what types of companies and, and ideas are you looking to uh, invest in and put money in? Really broadly, the industry sectors that the state of Wisconsin through the Badger Fund of Funds program has identified as, as areas we want that we should be directing our investments into our agriculture, 
IT, medical device and medical imaging, advanced manufacturing, and engineered products. Very broad. You know, as a small fund, there's things that we're not going to be able to do. Um, you know, certain new medical devices, uh, pharmaceuticals, things that take have a long regulatory pathway or require something like a clinical trial. Uh, those are more expensive. You know, my entire fund couldn't fund one, you know, normal clinical trial. Um, those are, you know, tens of millions of dollars on their own. And so there's areas that we're not exploring. Um, but I think the areas that are identified are ones that Wisconsin is really strong in, and they're, they are very broadly defined. And so we're going to cover a lot of what the types of innovations that we see all over the state. I have some academic partners. We provide sort of an exchange of, you know, educational opportunities for their inventors, for their entrepreneurial students. Um, you know, they notify me if they see good investment opportunities coming through. And then Concordia University is also a partner. And so I have a direct link to their investment opportunities. And then, of course, throughout uh, the last two or so years, I've developed some strong relationships with a number of other academic institutions across the state, obviously UW-Madison, um, through some of their entrepreneurship and product development programs, you know, as well as, as other offices, both public and private, all over the state of Wisconsin. And so that's kind of my my focus for deal flow is finding these, these very, very early stage um, either product or newly developed companies uh, that are looking for investments. Can you talk about, there's like this huge, massive gender gap in venture capital. And can you talk, give the listeners kind of like an idea of, of the lack of, of female voices and, and voices of the, um, yeah, just tell me about that in venture capital. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a gender gap. I should have maybe thought about it, assumed, known. Um, so when I started talking to Ken, very early on, he made a comment to me where he said, you know, my daughters told me that I should really try to work with women. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, he's the father of two girls. Maybe that he just thought that's, you know, his daughters were like, you always work with men, work with women. Um, I Even then, I didn't really realize that there were not a lot of women in venture. It became apparent very quickly. Most of my meetings were with, uh, you know, men as investors, with men as CEOs of startups looking for funding, um, men as leaders of other funds, of angel groups. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I'm already in it, so I'm not going to back out of it now. And it was awkward. I don't. I think that might be the best way to to say it. Is it's just uncomfortable. Anytime you're one of you know a, a person in a room and you are distinctly different from everyone else in the room, you're gonna feel a little self conscious. You're gonna feel like you might have something to prove. You can't hide. You know, like I couldn't just sort of like disappear into the crowd. Um, and. I had read some horror stories about the state of things in other places. After I started looking into this, you know, there's books about it. There's articles about it. I am so happy to say Wisconsin is not, it's, it's not like that, you know? Um, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. There's not a lot of women in this field. There's more now than were two years ago though. I mean, it's, the change is, is obvious, but it's, everyone is supportive. I don't think people have really kind of intentionally excluded me from anything, uh, intentionally made me feel uncomfortable or unwelcome, not at any point. Um, and so I feel very lucky to have gone through this in this environment. Um, and I, over time, I started to kind of enjoy being the person who was the woman, you know, starting her own fund in Wisconsin. Um, originally, I was very uncomfortable with that because I didn't want to fail in front of everybody. And I didn't want to feel like I didn't know what I was doing in front of everybody. But over time, I realized that everyone has gone through that. Every venture capitalist, every entrepreneur goes through that because there is no right way to do this. There's no educational track for it. 
Um, and so I leaned on some of my mentors and, you know, I just said, as long as I keep showing up, um, as long as I am taking the time to educate other people about what I'm doing and letting them understand that venture capital is a world that's accessible to them, uh, you know, things will change. Maybe it's going to take a long time, but it's happening. And so, you know, I'm really excited that the Badger Fund now has another woman fund manager. So now there's two funds led solely by women in the state of Wisconsin. So um, the Gateway Capital Fund out of Milwaukee is now led by Dana Guthrie. And I'm thrilled. I'm so excited. You know, I thought, oh, do I want to keep being the only one? No. The answer to that is no, absolutely not. Um, I love having somebody else that is in the same kind of boat and that I can talk to about these things and who kind of sees it through the same lens as I do. And I've loved having women in other various investment roles as part of my network who have been just as welcoming and understanding. And, you know, um, it's, I think it, it is, it's been fun. It's, I'm very proud. It's kind of exciting. I think Wisconsin is doing a good job of it. And I think that um, there's going to be a lot more change to come. But had someone said to me from day one, like, hey, heads up, um, there are no other women-led funds in the state. I, I don't know if that would have been scary enough for me to step into, um, you know, to, to have turned me off of this, this trajectory. But um, so I guess in a way, it's just like I had no idea who J.J. Watt was. I had no idea that I was going to be the only woman. And I think it just works out. Um, but yeah, it's exciting now. And overall, people are making efforts to kind of balance that out so that there are more women in leadership positions and funds, decision-making roles. And I think truly for us to ever have an impact on supporting more, you know, women um, and people of color as founders of companies, there needs to be more diversity on the funding side of things, because the reality of it is people are comfortable talking to people that look like them and they like hearing things from people that look like them. Um, and I think they're just more willing to accept information from people that look like them. So what can the venture capital world do to try and, and open up that and invite or gather more women to be in funders and people of color? And yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we just need to realize what the barriers are um, and then remove them. So right now, um, part of a project that I'm really passionate about and I'm supporting is educating women investors. So like women don't know that venture capital doesn't mean they have to be a billionaire. You know, there's, you have to comply with some regulations. Sometimes the SEC, sometimes you don't. Um, you can start investing really anytime. A lot of people don't realize they already are investors. You know, do you have a 401k? You're an investor. Do you have an IRA? You're an investor. People don't realize that they already are investors. They don't feel sophisticated enough. They don't want to ask the questions because you don't want to ask the question because you feel like you don't, it makes you seem like you're not intelligent or like you're naive and you don't want to be naive when you're talking about investing. You know, when you're investing, you want to sound like you know what you're talking about because you have to be sure that you're going to make a million dollars with that investment. Um, that's not true. I already know half of the investments that I make are likely to fail. That's just data. That's not, has nothing to do with my fund or my decision-making process. That's data. And you have to accept that. And so I think educating people on risk, educating people on the actual requirements that you need to meet to be an investor, and then educating people on how to make investments. Uh, I think that's huge. And I think educating the people that traditionally have been excluded from those conversations is going to be huge. So, you know, if you don't traditionally find yourself on a golf course with other, you know, kind of successful, well-to-do people, then you got to find a different place to have those conversations. And so we're creating different places for those conversations to take place. So when you're making an investment decision, how much do you rely on like the numbers and the data and 
stuff and that side of the investment and how much do you rely on on like your intuition that this investment is gonna pay off yeah yeah I try to keep emotion out of it I have an investment committee so that's a that's a really big reason that I felt comfortable going into this I have an investment committee that votes on the investment opportunities I present to them and so I look at the numbers and I say okay you know this is a um, software company, traditionally annual growth for a software company has been kind of in this range. Uh, traditional exit valuations are calculated this way. And, you know, this company is operating in with this, uh, you know, customer in mind, and this is a, the problem that they solve. And these are all things that I can kind of verify and say, this is a real problem. And there are people that are willing to pay this to solve that problem. And I look at those types of things. And then, um, you know, I, I want to say, if I invest now, and I get this much of the company through my investment. Uh, you know, if it exits in five years at the average uh, multiple that we've seen exits take place at, do I generate the return that I need? So if it kind of checks all the generic boxes. Uh, and then if, it, if I'm like, all right, I'm feeling pretty good about this, then they come in and they meet my investment committee. They pitch, they go through the whole thing. They talk about their company, the problem, the customer, um, you know, they talk about their projected growth. They talk about what they're going to do with the money that you're giving them for the investment and all those things. But the big thing is too, they talk about their team because no matter how well thought out of a plan you have, if you can't execute it, it is meaningless. And so it's really, really important that we talk about the team and the team's ability to do the things that they need to do to make all those numbers you know, as likely as possible. Nothing is guaranteed. We know nothing is guaranteed. It is risky. I mean, as someone who has avoided risk her entire life, even went into a profession known for avoiding risk and protecting people against risk and all of that, I find myself here. And so um, I understand it's risky and, and it's really important to me that people understand that. And But um, my investment committee is the one that has done it. They've been through it. They've been investors. They've been founders. They've sold companies. They've lost a lot of money on companies. So when they look at an investment, they see it through that lens of experience and they look at a team and they're like, okay, can this team, is this team um, flexible? You know, if something doesn't go as planned, is this team going to be able to handle it or is it just going to break them? Uh, and so that's why I really rely on my investment committee. Um, and that's a big part of, of the investment decision too. So how do you find these ideas and, and the, do people approach you or do you have to fit, like seek them out? Yeah. When you're asking for money, no one wants to be your friend. When you're giving away money, everyone wants to be your friend. Uh, so now that people know that the fund had reached our minimum, that we were able to start investing, um, I've seen a lot more people reaching out to me and letting me know about things that their companies are working on. But then I also actively go and speak with these universities and um, different groups like accelerator programs, um, you know, venture studios to talk to them about the companies that they've been working with. And so it's a, it's a little bit, it comes from all directions. Um, you know, some of them are through my own established channels and then some of them are through a little bit more like um, someone saw me speak at something, someone uh, read an article or maybe I was at a you know Wisconsin Tech Council event or something along those lines. But the thing that I like is that I think venture capitalists are not seen as these unapproachable people anymore, especially in Wisconsin. I think we're all pretty friendly. And so if you have a good idea, I don't know, tell us about it. Um, I think that's one of the things that I also had as a stereotype in my head is that like venture capitalists were these like scary, unapproachable people. And you had to impress them, otherwise like, they were just not willing to give you 30 seconds. Um, but after having gone through fundraising and sort of the, those two years of uncertainty and, and um, you know, essentially starting my own company to do it, which is very different because it's not a scalable company, but that alone was scary enough. And I know that these people are taking on a different set of risks and that they have a different set of hurdles and, and um, things that they need to accomplish. And so I get it. Like, I don't want people to be afraid to, reach out to me and I'm just a normal person. <laughs> so when you're um, looking at ideas and stuff and things to potentially 
you know, put some money into. It, I mean, statistics, it, like we talked about it earlier, like it's more oftenly money is given to male CEOs and, 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 and you know, people, men with ideas and stuff more often in white people. Um, so like, how are you going to make an effort when you get into the investment stage to, to eliminate, you know, bias on, on that, on that front of this, of the fund? Yeah. I mean, my point of view is now represented in whether my committee sees an investment or not. And so, um, you know, a great, a great example is like the healthcare system. While approximately half of all people using healthcare are women but women are not often represented on the other side of the table when we're looking at these investment opportunities. And so um, I think that my voice will be used to kind of explain the other perspective. And it's just my perspective. I think that there is still a lack of diversity and my investment committee is gonna have a woman on it. We have um, a core group of women investors from the Milwaukee area, women professionals, uh, who are first time investors in venture, but they, you know, a lot of them have various investment backgrounds. and financial backgrounds. And so um, we're going to have a woman from that group as an investment committee member. So there is going to be not only my voice as the fund manager who's bringing the investment opportunities to the investment committee, but a voting member on the investment committee. Um, you know, we were going to have a little bit of diversity added there so that, uh, you know, we can kind of make sure that that these perspectives are not lost, that it there is a number of different perspectives going into the decision-making process rather than kind of one sort of common shared perspective. I know you talked about pitching virtually and raising money virtually. How has COVID affected the fund and, and what you do? You know, it's, it, was, uh, it was really nerve-wracking in March when I had to cancel all of my meetings. Um, but then we started moving them virtual, and I think virtual has made people more accessible, and COVID has been a um, sort of sort of an equalizer in a lot of ways. It's certainly in a lot of other ways, it's not at all, but um, we all find ourselves facing similar problems that we can all kind of lament about together. You know, if I'm at home and an animal appears in the back of my Zoom, um, or if I'm having Wi-Fi issues, or if, you know, um, someone's kid walks into the room, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, we're all just people. It used to be, I would walk into like a really fancy conference room with, um, you know, some head of a company, if I was talking to them about an investment or, you know, and now it's kind of like, I'm just seeing everybody sitting at their kitchen table. And so it, it made me a lot more comfortable, I think, with these talking to a lot of these individuals for the first time, you know, the initial reaction is to go in and there's just like this completely like we're not on the same level because um, I'm just starting out and they might have been doing this for years and years and years. But then when you're talking to someone and you're both just kind of like sitting there drinking a coffee, um, it's a much different. It gives a much different tone to the conversation. And then it also made a lot of investors more accessible. So I have a number of out-of-state investors that I don't think I would have been able to develop these relationships with if the expectation had been that we meet in person because, you know, I can't be traveling uh, these long distances frequently, but I can have three, four or five phone calls with someone in, you know, Illinois or Pennsylvania or Connecticut. Um, and that's, that's really easy to plan. And so it only takes a minute or two. So, um, you know, in some ways it did make it harder because it's harder to establish a real connection with someone and to, um, make sure that you're addressing all of their concerns and building that confidence in yourself for them. Uh, and then in some ways it was easier because I can just click a button on my computer and we can be face to face these days. Yeah. So what do you see in the future for the fund? Well, I want to start making our investments. Um, you know, we've had some investors that have been supporting us uh, and waiting for this, this investment period to start for two years. And so I want to make sure that we start deploying that capital um, responsibly, but as soon as possible. And I want to keep doing it. I want to do another fund. I want to have women colleagues. Maybe, you know, I want to bring somebody else on and, and give them the benefit of all of the help and the assistance that I've received from the community and from my mentors. 
And so, you know, in the next couple of years, we're just going to be trying to make the best decisions that we can make about investing. Uh, in the next five or 10 years, I want to start looking at another fund and I want to start um, adding, you know, more diversity to the venture capital ecosystem. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's such a joy. Um, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners? No, I just, um, just don't be afraid if it's scary. Scary's good. You know, um, it was, it's a, a why not rather than a why. Like I, there was a lot more why nots. Um, it's just, there was, there was a lot more reasons not to do it than there were reasons. Cause there's no certainty, but like, uh, the biggest question is, are you going to regret not doing it? Are you going to regret not trying it? Are you going to look back and say, I missed an opportunity? And so I think a lot of things in life are scary, but I don't think that that should prevent people from doing things. And um, I'm happy to talk to anybody anytime. So if people are ever like, you know, I'm interested in learning more about this or something, then I just feel like people should just reach out and ask questions. Questions are good. doesn't make you look like you don't know things. We all have to understand we don't know things. For more information on the Winnow Fund, go to their website, winnowfund.com. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by Ben Brown, cover art, editing, producing, and booking, also by Ben Brown. If you are a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, please email me at ben at themadisonianpodcast.com to express interest. Please support us by buying our merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast, or click the link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and keep an eye out for next week's episode.